Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again this week by Katerina Kern and Alec Bianco for some more Ovid's Metamorphosis. How are y'all this week? Good. Yeah, doing good. It was good to get to see both of you in person last week. That was fun to catch up and spend a few hours together anyway. Well, this week we are looking at the story of uh, Venus and Adonis, which actually picks up right after, I think, where we left off last week. Um couple of interesting notes. I think we were running into some issues where uh, different versions cut these stories in slightly different places. Um, uh, as this one includes like another metamorphosis myth within it being told by by Venus. So um, just something to keep in keep in mind when you're reading Ovid that uh, sometimes the, the stories are kind of labeled and, and broken up slightly differently as it is one long running uh, book of verse. So any initial thoughts from you guys? Uh, we were discussing a little bit off the air. I think some of that funnier notes there are, are not necessarily are, are humorous to us anyway in the goddess describing things. Yeah. the One of the first things I noticed compared to maybe some of the other stories is that this one has a more fable-like quality to it with like a moral to the story. But unlike... Mm-hmm you know aesop's or something like that aesop's fables it's um uh ovid kind of gives us the whole story so we get the the original sort of backdrop to what's happening this tale that she gives to warn him about hunting and then sure enough he hunts and then perishes so that I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, it's not like the story of Orpheus that we read and Eurydice didn't quite wasn't wasn't quite clear. You know, you've got the warning and then the bad thing happened, but it wasn't so obvious to me what he did wrong. And that was kind of our big question. And then this one, this one is kind of funny. Don't hunt. <laughs> and then Adonis can't help himself and he goes hunting. <laughs> Alec, I, I'm intrigued at, uh, this is maybe an exercise that we should do is when, when we're starting one, have each of us do a narration of it. I wouldn't have said that that's a summation of the story. So I'm intrigued that we have, if, if I reduced it to one or two sentences, um, I don't know that I would, I don't even know that I agree with the way you just described it. I like this. How, she how, says, right? don't go hunting. How would you summarize that? I mean, if you're I maybe, well, well, it depends on what he means by go hunting and he goes. I mean, I don't know that she does warn him not to go hunting. She warns him not to hunt certain wild animals that will turn on you and run after you. And then it doesn't say that he went and hunted the boar. His dogs, because of fate, go find the boar in the cave. And then he, you know, hits it with his bow or arrow, whatever it is. So... I don't know that I would say that she warns him not to go hunting and he does go hunting. And so that is the warning of the story. I think if I, and again, it depends on what you mean when you said those things. Perhaps I'm taking you to have meant something you didn't mean. But if I were to narrate the story very, very simply, I think I would say the goddess of love is communing with a human and describes a tale of human love where a desecration occurs to such a degree that it brings about death 
and then the goddess redeems her own love and makes makes it partly eternal something like that i mean that's obviously longer than what you said so perhaps they're both perhaps you'd agree with what i said but um yeah i i don't know i don't know can you can you tell us what you meant by what you said yeah i don't know i mean i guess that's i i wouldn't disagree with your yeah your summary there but i guess what i what what first immediately popped out to me was what I was saying is this sort of fable-like quality. Um, and it seemed almost obviously connected in that sense that yeah, right, I agree. right before he dies from hunting, you know, even if it was an accident, um, she's telling this story about the dangers of these wild beasts. But but it is really interesting, and it brings me actually to the beginning of the story, a part that puzzled me that I, maybe you guys can help me kind of understand what's happening here. But as we recall from last week, he Adonis is the one born of Kinneris and, and Mira, right? And he pops out of the tree after she's turned into, into this one, the Murtry. And which is well, okay, so sorry, I'm seeing more things now as we're talking. <laughs> but so that's where he's coming from, um, Adonis. And at the beginning of which is around line 570 for me. Um, but it says swift time glides by unnoticed and deceptive. Nothing can outspeed years. That boy, the son of his own sister and his grandfather. But who once was hidden in that tree, then born, is now the loveliest baby, now a youth, and now an even lovelier man, whose looks charm Venus, payback for his mother's flames. Which reminds me of the sequence of growing up in the Disney Tarzan movie, where he like flies into the water and comes out <laughs> as a grown man. Sorry, that <laughs> just reminded me of that. Um, Lion King does it too, he's trotting along. That's right, that's right, on the, on the log there. Um, so, you know, Disney's in a long tradition there, uh, classic uh, growing up tales. But the, the part that's really interesting to me and I have a question about is the next few lines. And so it says, for as he quivered, or for as her quivered son was kissing her, his arrow accidentally scratched her chest. Injured, the goddess pushed him back. The wound went deeper than it looked. At first, it tricked her. So uh, what is that? What just happened there? I'm very confused by this this scene. So I'm glad you brought this up because when y'all were talking about the, your, the two different ways you narrated just now, the first thing that struck me when I read it through the first time was this idea that um, his his mother's fires are going to be revenged. Like this story is going to show how her, almost like what happened to Mira was... Um, it needs some kind of vengeance or, or avenging for it, which was a surprising after our discussion last week um, with Cupid, not claiming her, her, her love for her father. But this one almost seems to blame um, Venus for not, for not directing her love properly or something as the goddess. Uh, I don't, I don't know. It was, it was, I was trying to figure that out, but, but then it leads into um, multiple ill uh ill pursuits so because i read this next part that she she gets um smitten the same way mortals do by by cupid's by cupid's uh arrow 
piercing her. And then the, her, the description of her going after Adonis is also described in hunting like terms. It seems like in that next little section and maybe ill-advised to be pursuing a, a mortal that, that way. Um, and ultimately it, it ends in pain for her as well. So just like the story that she tells and just like Adonis's hunting, hunting story. So you have these three kind of images of, of the hunting happening, um, that seem to parallel each other to some extent and all ending in a little bit of tragedy. Um, the one being redeemed by her in the end, uh, by, by turning, um, Adonis's perishing body or, or at least the blood into the, into the flowers. So. Yeah. I wondered if that line and avenges his mother's desire. And then the next bit about Cupid and the arrow, I wonder if that was telling us that in the previous story, when it said Cupid denied being a part of Mayra, I think that's how he said it, mm -hmm. of, of her passion. Um, this certainly calls that into question. I think the first time we read that, the reader has a at least a valid reason to qu question whether Cupid was lying when he insisted that he wasn't participating in that. But now it calls it even further into question. Maybe he did it on accident. Maybe there's something that he can't control in his own powers when he's instilling passion, which is also leading those who receive it to be out of control. Um, or maybe he's just, he, he he's reckless and irresponsible and does throw love around mm -hmm. um, and deny it. You know, it, certainly Cupid here becomes very unreliable. So that, I think, alters the way that we view the story before and it is interesting that now, because of Cupid, Myra will be avenged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, his, certainly his there seems to be a carelessness on his part when he kisses when he kisses uh, Venus, right? That um, at, at best it's carelessness that his that his arrow scratches her. At worst, it's he's likes to mess around and and cause trouble um with his powers he, he's more uh mischievous than maybe we than maybe we previously thought um yeah that, that's that's interesting it really does call that more into question because in that previous one it seemed to in that right for he did he denies it it's it's blamed on one of uh, i think a a fate and you know but unnamed but a fate instead um taking part in that and so either either he's more complicit than than he's than he's taking responsibility for um or the the realm of love what should have been him and venus was um left to be marred by some other by some nameless fate in that first in that first story um and in either case i think this seems to be indicating that 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 vengeance is is deserved for that mistreatment of Mira and it's coming through this story in some way. Yeah, and I think that idea of fate is very is crucial to the star. I mean, it's all throughout the, the motif of fate is woven throughout this. Um and and to some extent, it seems as I'm reading more of these stories, like we're looking at humans trying to understand, well, how is the world 
changing? How is the world what it is? If the gods are fixed, if the gods rule over certain realms, then how can we have change in this physical world of ours? And so they're thinking about, you know, fate as a force that's constant, gods that rule over certain things, and then this material world that's in a state of flux. And then how do we really, sorry, how do we relate to all of those things? Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if those motifs are popping out because there are, because they are intentionally being worked through in these texts, or if it's because, you know, that's how I'm viewing it or, or what, whatever the case may be, but it does seem that fate is a really important part of the story and specifically the relationship between the material world and fate and the way, the way that those might perhaps explain change. Yeah, this this keeps coming up in our discussions with the, especially with the Greek and Roman texts. Um, it happened when we were looking at Sophocles as well. The, what what the role of fate is, um, and I think we tend to have a view that that their view was that the fates were unchangeable or something along. And I I keep having that called into question by these texts. Um, whether that that's really a right view of how the Greeks and Romans saw things, or whether there's a lot more interplay with the fates and the gods and man's um actions and decisions and they're and they themselves like you said are wrestling through it in these texts um trying to understand uh what what forces are at play and how much humans uh, choices matter which i think is always which is good yeah. for us to wrestle with yeah and it's important to keep in mind for us too looking back it seems so long ago but there's almost 900 years between homer and his expression of <laughs> The Greek gods, and then Ovid, and Ovid's living in a time where all the religions are living to coexisting peacefully, largely, mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire. Um, there's a lot of space for a lot of different priests and priestesses and religions and all of that. And so I think when we see Roman poetry and its exploration of the gods and of fate, I think it's very, very different from the Grecian. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's 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 my opinion on this. But um, no, that's why yeah, I, that's I good it with reading. That's harder for I us think to distinguish. Ovid's doing his own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ovid's just Ovid, I think. Well, I think it's, it might be slightly different, or it's a different track than what you guys are going on, but I think it might be related to some degree. But what's another thing that stood out to me that's really interesting about this story, and it's similar to the last story we read, but going along this idea with the fates and the gods the central character of these three stories is not adonis it's venus or atlanta mm-hmm. and so I, I think compared to the the kind of the previous stories we've read and some of the other stories in this book what i'm sort of fascinated by and would love to explore with y'all is the sort of what i see as a very feminine point of view in this story everything is from the female perspective the feminine rather feminine perspective yeah um even what it says in the in the opening with the with the sort of hunt that's going on that she's she's following this guy who we're sort of extrapolating from the text is an avid hunter a manly man um who you know, is a rich athlete. And so because she's so in love with him, she's doing it with him. So she's running around 
following him around at this hunt. And yet mm-hmm. it says, and, 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 and I love that the, the comparison to Diana, who is the huntress, um, it says she treks through hills, through woods, through thicket covered crags, her tunic, her tunic girt knee high, just like Diana's. Um, but she spurs the hounds hunting those animals whose spoils are safe, fleet hares or longhorned stags or deer. She keeps away from bonny boars and shrinks from thieving wolves. She warns you too to fear them as if warnings might work. Adonis, bravely hunt the skittish, but boldness is not safe against the bold. If you're too rash, young man, it might harm me. So it's, and then she goes to tell him a story. And she says, I'm tired, not used to labor. Look, here is a poplar enticing us with pleasant shade and grass that forms a bed. Let us rest here together. So I'm just, I'm really fascinating in Venus's perspective here. And I'm not saying she is the stereotypical feminine view, but she's a Venetian feminine view uh, compared to some of the other stories that we've read. So and for the mm-hmm. sort of Greek and Roman pantheon, she represents a very specific kind of femininity. That's that this Adonis character is even almost wanting to bring her into a different form of femininity, like Diana, who's this more athletic kind. And she brings up Atlanta, Atalanta, rather, who's kind of this. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe it. Um, athletic adventurous person but it's tempered by this idea of safety and being careful so i don't know mm-hmm. anyways i i'm not sure what i'm saying here or seeing but it's it's very fascinating to me this this perspective that the story is about adonis but in reality it really isn't it's about venus yeah i'm really glad you're the one who brought that up because i didn't <laughs> want to be the one to be like hey this is a feminist story <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and that's not what I'm that's not what I'm necessarily going to say. Um, but it's hard for me to not read the story within the the context of symbols of masculine and feminine. Um, so if I can, I'd like to do that. I mean, I think that please, it's relevant yes, because these are myths. Um so first we have the tree. And when we when the transformation into the tree first occurred and trees are all over this, I was like, okay, it's probably not the life-giving tree. But here at the beginning, we see this repeated motif within myths all the time of the life-giving tree or the tree of life, where the the branches on the tree represent the heavenly kingdom and the apples, they're typically golden apples that grow on those branches, are the riches that come from the heavenly kingdom. And then you have the trunk of the tree, which is where like our basically mother earth um, or the, the, the trunk is where humans dwell, the land that we walk on. And then of course the roots are the underworld and this, this framework, um, provides the context for a lot of mythology. And I think that this story is working within that framework, particularly because Aphrodite actually goes and picks the apples and hands them to hip, oh gosh, hippomenes. Hippomenes, I don't, I don't know the right way to say that, um, as he's racing. And so the, to, to distract the godlike woman, throw her pieces of heaven. Um, and then here at the end, when I think, I think a really crucial part of the story is when they go into the cave. And I'm going to read this section because it's, it's really important, um, I think, symbolically. And 
it's a couple sentences. Is it okay if I read it all? Go for it. Okay. Um, so this is after the lovers are together in the woods. So they, you know, completed the race and now they're together. Um, it says they were passing a temple hidden in the deep woods. So the deep woods in myths frequently symbolize the feminine because there's this mystery to them that's a part of the feminine, whereas the masculine shines light. So when you see light revealed, it's more masculine, but the darkness and the depth of woods tends to be more feminine. Um, so they're passing a temple hidden in the deep woods of Sibylle, mother of the gods. So, you know, of course, it's the mother of the gods here. That noble Echion, is that how you say that, Alec or Brandon? Do either of you know Echion? That's right. Okay, thank you. Um, had built in former times fulfilling a vow. So we have the same echo from the previous story where right at the moment of the utter sin, the worst moment, we see somebody, the foil of our character who was virtuous and had done the right thing. So Kion built or um, kept a vow and built a temple to the mother of the gods. So we know now it's the mother of the gods who's supposed to be honored. That's the height of virtue here. And the length of their journey persuaded them to rest. Okay, so then they actually go into the cave. And let's see, where's the line? Um, near the temple was a poorly lit hollow like a cave, roofed with a natural pumice stone, sacred to the old religion, where the priests had gathered together wooden figures of the ancient gods. They entered it and desecrated the sanctuary with forbidden intercourse. So entering a cave symbolically is like going down into Mother Earth. And there they are now doing this act of desecration. And the sacred images averted their gaze. And the great mother with the turreted crown hesitated as to whether to plunge the guilty pair beneath the waters of the sticks. But the punishment seemed too light. So tawny manes spread over their necks that a moment ago were smooth, their fingers curved into claws. Okay, so here we see them turning into wild boars. And um, so Mother Earth has turned humans into the wild aspects of, of the Great Mother, this, um, the fierceness of the Great Mother, which we see in all of mythology around the Great Mother, that she's either life-giving and bringing about new potential for the future, or she's this storm, this wild um, crushing force that you have to be respectful and honoring towards. Um, so I think the, the, the force and the power of the great mother is ultimately essential to this story. What do you guys think? Well, can you, can you say a little bit more about why it's so essential for the story? her power yeah um so if we think about again that the great tree or the tree of life how the the realm of the trunk is the realm of man so adonis stems from the trunk he is man he right. symbolizes the human race because he comes forth from the trunk of the tree so ultimately this is a story of the heavenly feminine and how it relates to mankind as Venus comes down and acts like a man, acts like a human, and leave it says she prefers to live here with Adonis to heaven. So she's fallen down to his level. Um, and and then the highest virtue, as I described here when we were reading this, the section about the temple, 
was the the man who actually honored the great mother and built that temple. And instead of desecrating the feminine mother earth, um, honored it and left it sacred, created a sacred space for mother earth. But here the great offense was to go into the cave and to have forbidden intercourse. Now they're married, right? This isn't the story like the previous one where the intercourse itself was forbidden. It's the place that they're doing it that is the problem. They're desecrating the great mother. And so um, all of this is, again, that level of the trunk where it's, I think, exploring the nature of humanity and what we're meant to hold sacred and what it means that we come from the earth um, and that we owe it something. Like, it, it is our mother. The earth is our mother. So how do we relate to it then, even in our own love? And especially when there's a yearning for heaven, mm-hmm. right? Like Venus coming down to earth. Um, when we long for heaven, what does that mean about our relationship to earth? Yeah, I think but that's... Maybe, maybe I'm... No, that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking like, you know, we've had this conversation a couple of times about how much do we bring in of our own experience and of things uh, of our own Christian understanding and how much do we try and see the story as it is. But, um, but, the, but, but that, that idea of, of being of the earth, um, it isn't, isn't, doesn't exempt, uh, the story of Eden, right. Where, where the, the dirt is what the life is breathed into. It's still formed out of the earth and, and then, mm-hmm. and then when we see Christ incarnate, there's very clearly a, a motherly womb, and that's that's the human aspect of that, of whatever that whatever's going on in that in that in that uh, mysterious miracle of, of Christ incarnate. There's an element of of man and the earth and, and the womb in the same way, like you're describing here as a a picture of of the 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 earth mother goddess in the cave being similar to that one that's being desecrated or that, or that space for the, the earth mother being desecrated. Um, I, I, I'm glad we went down this, this, this road a little bit with pointing out it being a very feminine story. And really the, the previous one was too, in some ways, it was mostly about Mira, right. Um, and her actions. And I think, um, you know, you, you kind of joked about, worrying about being the one to bring up the the feminist view view um but i think this really stands in contrast to for lack of a better term like a, a modern feminist view of, of having to look at stories through that lens that that um sometimes would argue that there isn't that you know because we're getting all our stories from old white males in the in the in the in the tradition that there's not real representations of of and varied representations of of womanhood but I think that both of these stories together counteract that we get so many different layers between the Earth Mother and Venus and Artemis and Atlanta, Atlanta. I'm not going to say her name right, and um, and Mira, that we're getting very complex questions about about purity and appropriateness when it comes to to women and then to mankind, and then that and it isn't limited to women, right? It's 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 it even though it's playing out through these female characters, it's raising questions about mankind and God and mankind and heaven and earth in a way that I think sometimes, sometimes uh, these ancient texts are not given the credit for, for that by modern audiences. So, yeah, I, 
Yeah, I, I think going along with that and and kind of going back to what you're saying, Katerina, I have a question, though. Um, so right before they go to the temple and commit their act of desecration, uh, um, Venus says, says this, wasn't I worthy of his thanks of incense, Adonis? He forgot and did not thank me or give me incense. I'm at once enraged. Pained by this slight, I set myself against them, warning posterity through their example not to disdain me. In a wooden glen, they passed by a temple built by famed Echion, who'd vowed it to the mother of the gods. The lengthy journey prompted them to rest. There, an untimely yearning to make love assailed Hippomenes. My power stirred it. So how do you sort of connect this... I mean, it seems to me Venus is saying, I did this out of anger and caused their downfall. Which is interesting mm -hmm. because when she's hunting with Adonis, she doesn't want him to fight the boars or hunt them. The very thing she created. Or well, in this case, caused. I think it's the I think the lions, right? She creates the lions. This creates the lions. Not the boars. It's hard to tell. Mine's, the translation says lions, but it says that those lions, dreadful to all others, grip the reins of Sibylle with docile teeth. So they don't have sharp teeth. Right. I just meant that they that Hippomenes and Atlantia turned into lions, not boars is all. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It says that they were turned into creatures with docile teeth. Hmm. So I don't actually know. I don't have any note or footnote to tell me what they actually turned into. Gotcha. Um, but anyways, I mean, I'm not sure whether, it, regardless, she doesn't want him fighting these wild beasts that can attack back. Turn back on you, yeah. Right. But she's the one who caused them to be turned into those and caused this because of her anger against them. So it's very, I'm, I'm very confused about this, um, how, how her, or not, I'm, I'm interested in how Venus plays a role in this warning and on an ultimate death of Adonis and how that connects mm -hmm. back to what you were talking about with the, with the tree and where he comes from and the relationship to Sibylle and, and, um, the gods and fate yeah that's a great question i mean i'm not sure how it relates back to that but i want to think about it i think that it it makes sense with aphrodite or i guess i'm wondering why this it's confusing or why it would be unfamiliar to us for aphrodite to have caused this sort of chaos and then kind of get stung because of it um because it, there i mean there's time difference here i mean if she is leading them to mother earth and then mother earth is causing this curse um first she doesn't necessarily know the consequences but you know symbolically certainly and there's it's obvious that mother earth is going to turn them wild um but then it's it seems I, maybe this comes back to that question of is it a natural consequence like, is, is it just what they had to become because they were runners? Um, in which case, you know, it's a part of their nature and Mother Earth turns them back to what they are. 
Um, but that it seems like the text tells us that's not the case here because at the beginning it says you're going to be something other than what you are. Um, although that could mean different things. I guess what I'm wondering is what to you seems unfamiliar or strange about Aphrodite creating this chaos and then getting stuck by it, which is my initial question. So I could have said that and left it at that. <laughs> I'm just trying to explore this. What I guess what is what is this tale trying to communicate to us? And mm -hmm. and it's interesting because if you take out or it starts with Venus becoming entranced by this young man who's a hunter and he likes to hunt deadly game. She wants to hunt safe things like hares and stags, and he wants to hunt things like lions and boars. And so mm -hmm. she has to warn him against doing that. And in order to tell this tale, so maybe, uh, it, did it not work? Because did he fall, did he, did the warning not work? Because she actually revealed that she was the one who caused it? Or in some ways helped why, cause. Why do you say the warning didn't work? Because he kept hunting and ultimately dies from that. But she doesn't tell him game. not to hunt anything. He hunts, she doesn't though. tell him don't hunt anything. I know, she, but he hunts um, dangerous game. Mine says by chance his dogs following a well-marked trail roused a wild boar from its lair yeah i i'm not i don't know mine says his dogs while tracking footprints roused a boar out of its lair it bolted oh. from the thicket youthful adonis pierced it striking sideways so i think either way even if it accidentally came out because of the dogs he still chose to attack it and try to hunt it so i think my point still stands that okay he he wanted to do, hunt that thing um, and they happen to get it because of the dogs. And then that's yeah, what kills him. I, when I when I read this, I actually read the ending twice because I wasn't sure which ending it was, whether it was an accident, whether he was actually he listened to her. And then, you know, it's just the fates. The mm -hmm. dogs went after the boar. And then once the boar is woken up, it's going to kill him or he has to try to fight it off. Mm -hmm. That's one possible reading of it. Or the other, the other possible reading is that he was out hunting. Mine doesn't have the line about the dogs following footprints. That does seem to insinuate that he was out hunting the boar. Mm -hmm. This this gets really interesting for me in the question of fates and gods and men and who has control over what. Even even what's the relationship between the fates and the gods? Because the the thing that I mentioned earlier that where it starts off is that this story is going to avenge Mira. What's about to happen is about, is going to avenge Mira, right? Or his mother's, it will be revenged. Um, and then immediately we hear about her being pricked by Cupid's arrow and then being kind of infatuated with Adonis. Right. And so how much of this is just has to, is playing out to, to, it's interesting that, that Adonis would have to die maybe to avenge his mother, but the idea that she's going to fall for someone uh, Venus is going to fall for someone and 
and then try and warn him and and want to be with him and then almost immediately after warning him he dies and she loses him and like that's her she has to that's her suffering for what happened to mira um and and so it's it's almost a fate making a, a correction of some kind um either because she didn't intervene enough with mira or cupid didn't um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that works as far as who who's to blame, but it seems to indicate at the beginning that that this story is going to avenge Mira, and that the way it plays out is that she falls for Adonis, and then Adonis dies, and that's that that's suffering that's suffering for Venus. Um, I don't know. I wonder if that's. It, it, the the vengeance is that Mira had this passion and Aphrodite is the goddess of, of love and passion. And so she has to, Mira has to be avenged by Aphrodite experiencing death, destruction, suffering right. through love and passion. And so now she's going to be struck by Cupid's bow and now she's going to mourn the loss of Adonis, which right. I... I'm I'm glad you bring up this this echo again back to the whole purpose of the story, which I think is really important. That it's all about avenging Mira's death, because I've been wondering every time I've read the story, I haven't been able to sort this out. What is going on with the motif of running? Is this is this symbolizing something? Is this I have I've had a couple every time I read it, I read it differently. Like maybe running is the excellence of man. Maybe running is. Um, representative of human passion and this, this mm-hmm, movement mm-hmm. forward um maybe it's maybe it's telling us where we belong that we run on the ground that we move on the ground um maybe it's echoing our nature to us somehow i don't know but i can't figure out the purpose of running in the story and when you just said that it made me think maybe it is tied to that that the passion that drives you forward especially of course because we see the men who are the lovers chasing after atalantis how how they um, run, you know, even for their own death. It's this, mm-hmm. it's the narrator describes it as recklessness. Um, so yeah, what you just said made me think maybe there's a tie in there to, to that motif of running, which might tell us something then about the purpose of the story. Yeah. That I think my initial reading of them, I, I think this, you're right. There's so many ways to read that running. And my initial reading of it was, was the chasing the the passion chasing type like each of them seemed to be running after something whether it's uh, a person or a, or the the wild beast um and then and then obviously with the story in the middle which takes up the majority of this story is the hippomenes and and atlanta uh, atlanta story um you know gets more lines than even venus and adonis do um that clearly is a, a pursuit, right, of a, of a passion, of a desire. Um, and and even her running is a desire to not be, you know, wed to someone she doesn't want to be wed to. <laughs> um, and so mm-hmm. that, that certainly seems to be part of that running motif, if not the whole thing, uh, because I think you're right. There's, there's other ways to, to see that running. Um, but it does seem to fit with this kind of chasing after things. And then, and then again, I, I have to keep coming back to how much of that is determined by this sense of fate that, that things have to be set back. Right. That includes, you know, what happened to Mira 
and that, and part of the way that setback, like you said, is because Venus is the goddess of love and passion that, that she has to suffer through love and passion of Adonis, um, which seems rough for Adonis that he has to die <laughs> or has to have an untimely death because of that. Right. And just like his mother did, but, uh, it's, but then, you know, that's what we're dealing with. So. Can we maybe think a little bit about, about the race then with Atalanta and Hippomenes? Um, because yeah. I'm interested in the Oracle that mm-hmm. tells her. So in mine, so mine, it begins after she's telling him. I, again, I love this. He just, she's warns him about the beasts and Venus does. And then he, and then it says, when he asks why she says, I'll tell you of an ancient crime. You'll wonder at its marvels, but I'm tired, not used to labor. Look, here's a poplar enticing us with pleasant shade and grass that forms a bed. Let us rest here together. She rests, reclining on the grass, and him, head pillowed by the young man's lap. And as she spoke, she interspersed her words with kisses. Perhaps you've heard about a girl who could outrun swift men. That tale was not a rumor. She did outrun them. Nor could you have said if she excelled more in her speed or beauty. The god, when she inquired about a husband, replied, You need no husband, Atalanta. Flee all enjoyment of a husband, yet he won't, and you will lose yourself still living. Scared by this oracle, she lives unwed in shaded woods and violently repels her pressing throng of suitors with these terms. I can't be one unless I'm first outrun. Race me. The swift man gains a bride and marriage. The slow man pays with death. These are the rules. So I'm... A lot of things jump out at me right now. So one, it's fascinating that she is living the life of the thing she's going to become already anyways, running around in the woods, violently repelling anything else. She's going to become a lion that does the same thing. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting. So she's already... She's already a human, but she isn't even living the life that she wants to live. Um, and of course, the God tells her to flee all enjoyment of a husband, and she's the fastest person. So there's that running again, run away from that. Uh, and you're capable of running away from it. And then, of course, the, the, the actual the rules of this, if you don't win the race, you die. And of course, Hippomenes wins the race and still dies at least becomes a lion no longer has his life so i don't know that's a lot and i'm just all this stuff's and you know running around in my mind um no pun intended and (laughs) trying to understand what's going on here but i wonder if we can think about the, the what's happening in this this story of atalanta and hippomenes at least within the context of that story itself yeah, Alec, I think that's that's exactly the right place to look. Um, this is where I've been. I have no answers to your question, <laughs> but this is what I've been thinking about as well. Um, when it says, you know, perhaps you've heard of a girl who beat the fastest man at running. This is not no idle tale. She did win. What does that mean that she won? Um, what are they saying about her? Certainly, it's not just that she's the fastest runner. There's something else here that's being communicated about her. Um nor, nor could you say whether her speed or her beauty was more deserving of high praise. 
Um, And then this prophecy, I think, is revealing a little bit about it. You don't need a husband at Atlanta. Run from the necessity for a husband. Nevertheless, you will not escape. And still living, you will not be yourself. So even though she's the fastest, she's not able to actually escape. Although, like you mentioned, Alex, she is capable of it. She, She only loses because she's distracted by the golden apples. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't answer your question, but I think that there's something here that we need to to keep parsing out. Yeah, I'm really struck by that, too. I mean, because at one point, Hippomenes says that when the men are racing, that he's afraid after he sees her, that he's afraid that one of them is going to win or that they'll win by cheating. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find that that part. I don't remember where I saw it. Oh, there we go. It was very soon. It's around 6.35. Sorry to those I just rebuked. The prize was still unknown to me. While praising her, he starts to burn. He hopes that no young man runs faster, and he fears that one might cheat. Doesn't he cheat? <laughs> By using the apples, right? Praying to Venus to get this this uh this Mario Kart cheat code or whatever to <laughs> to beat her in the race. Uh, it's very, very interesting to me. Is it cheating? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Venus doesn't say it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess that become she's the rest of the story um seems to to point to some things when it comes to um, piety to the gods, you know, he should have thanked her. Um, they just shouldn't have desecrated the temple. Um, so it raises the question is that, that he, he, he wins because he, he um, asked for help from the appropriate goddess, right? That, that she's the goddess of love. And if that's, if, if that's your aim and then that's who you seek help from and she, and she grants it, um, and, and does that imply that the other the other young men who had failed and lost their life um, thought they could do it in you know out of their own hubris and and therefore and therefore didn't seek her seek her assistance um, and so he's actually rewarded for for some form of piety at that point but then he fails to follow through right and that's that's his downfall um, in that light I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call it cheating because he's given these these gifts to use um, by the goddess. Um, and, and it seems to indicate to me in the text that At- Atalanta actually kind of um, her eye is caught by Hippomenes when he stands, that she's, she's a little more willing to be caught by him. Um, and it is kind of wrestling with that throughout the race. Almost she, she slows down of her own accord in the very beginning, a little bit, to 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 kind of look at him more. Um, where's the line? Mm-hmm. I can't remember how it said it, but um, yeah, she seems she seems concerned says, that he would risk his life, right? And it says right before they race. Um, I'll read a few sentences here. She says, "If I were luckier, if the harsh fates did not prevent my marriage, you would be the one I would want to share my bed with." So there's right. an interesting. If the right. harsh fates did not prevent my marriage, but she's the one running. She spoke, an inexperienced feeling, the touch of desire for the first time, 
not knowing what she does, she loves and does not realize she loves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I don't, I think, yeah. So I don't know that I, that I view it as cheating as much as she slowed down for the things he tossed. She slowed down. She, she was seemed somewhat willing to marry him before, like Katarina just read. Um, and I think it adds a layer of, uh, if he had done what was right, his fate might've been better, but he didn't follow through. He, he started off well with Venus and then didn't give her the proper thanks afterwards. Um, at least that's what she indicates why she, why she led him into, into a era that got him in trouble with, um, uh, shoot. So I'm not gonna get the name right for the other uh, Sybil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Um, what you were just saying made me think about the line where Hippomenes is looking at the other runners and at first, it says that he condemns the young men for their excessive passion. So there is this idea of, you know, again, it's Aphrodite. The excessive passion is what she is the god of. And so for her to give the golden apples and um, for him to use them to entice Atalanta out of the race, um, all seems to be just participating in this whole motif of a race for love. Like, I, I, I mean, it's a cliche, but all is fair in mm-hmm. love and war. Like, <laughs> it, it seems, it seems like that's, that's what's happening here is that, I mean, it's a race for love. So it's almost exactly within the rules for him to use the golden apples in this way. There's one, yeah. there's one thing that I was confused about there. Sorry, go ahead, Alex. No, please. Um, at the end of that section, maybe this is super obvious and it's just my translation or it's just my brain that's missing this. Um, but Adonis sees her and he realizes, oh, wait, no, I actually do want to run this race. So he had condemned the excess passion, but now he's just participating in it. Um, and he says, forgive me you that I blamed. I had not yet realized what the prize was you were after, which again, like what, I know it's her, but what, <laughs> what, what exactly is this? Is it, is it the height of femininity that he wants? Is it, is it this, this feminine that is so elusive? Is it that he wants what he can't have? Like, what about her? I mean, it says her unclothed body, but that's just not a full answer to this question. I think yeah. um, like, what is he actually seeking? What does he see as the prize? And then it says, praising her, he falls in love with her and hopes none of the youths run faster, afraid through jealousy. But why in this competition is my luck left untested? The God himself favors the bold. Do you guys know who the God is? Do you, is that more clear in your versions? Or am I just am I just missing something obvious here? Um, I think mine says goddess. Or unless I just unless I just imagined that, because I was assuming it was referring to Venus. Um, let me Wait, can you read your line again? I missed. The... Yeah, it's at the end, right when he falls in love with her, and he says, "Forgive me to the dudes, like I condemned you, but now I'm on your team." Like, yes, I'm all about love and passion. At the end of that, in my section, it's the end of the paragraph. He says, "But why in this competition is my luck left untested?" The God Himself 
favors the bold. Yeah, it's not clear what what God he's referring to. Um, potentially, okay. the one he prays to later, which would be Venus. It yes. could also be his grandfather Neptune. Yeah, because yeah. it strikes me that Aphrodite, when she says, "Hey, beware of the wild animals," she says, "Beware of the animals that show their chest." Hmm. So yes. the bold animals. Mm-hmm. Mine says, "Mine says the god as well," and my brain just made it the goddess because I just assumed Venus. That's interesting. Um, that would be interesting if he's talking about uh, if he's talking about Neptune, but um, hmm. you're so saying the story saying Go you're ahead. saying that because she says beware the animal that that bears its chest that that's there's a kind of, that's a kind of proud image. And that that Hippomenes might be falling into that as well. Um, I don't know about pride. I think boldness. Bold. I okay. think there's an echo of boldness that Aphrodite echoes at the end when she's warning him be, to watch out for the animals that are bold uh, against you. Let me find the way she actually says. Which it. is what? Which is what he becomes. Um, he goes from being a man to being a lion. Yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah, Venus does say to Adonis in her first warning, bravely hunt the skittish, but boldness is not safe against the bold. The bold Thank beasts. You. Oh, yeah. right. Yes. So yeah, this, is, yeah, it is very interesting. It is interesting, Alec, when you when you started this whole thing, you said this reminded you more of a of a um fable than a lot of the others, but different than than how Aesop was about. And I read it through a couple of times and this seemed to have so much more for foreshadowing is how uh, of all throughout this kind of thing um than i had noticed in previous stories maybe that was just me not noticing but several things seem to kind of foreshadow or echo what's what's going to come um in some of these parallel storylines and so that one I, but that one i hadn't thought of the that he's referred to as bold she warns him you know, that even the bold should be wary of bold animals. Um, and Hippomenes become goes from being a bold man to being a bold animal. And then Adonis obviously is, is, is taken down by one of those same bold beasts. I think there's a very clear comparison between Hippomenes and Adonis. Uh, and going back to your question, Katarina, what is the prize here? Who Who is this prize? And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, she's a pretty woman, but what is the prize? And I look at, so right after we've just been reading, where Hibamini says, God helps the bold. Um, and it says, Hippomenes debates this as the virgin whizzes by, feet flying. The young Beatian thinks she darts as fast as Scythian arrows, yet he marvels even more at her beauty. Running gives her beauty. Mm-hmm. And at least from those few lines, what I see is what he's so taken by from her is, is the fact that she's beautiful, but it's also who she is and what she does that brings beauty to her that he sees. Mm-hmm. And so he loves that she is 
athletically powerful and fast, very fast. And he's drawn to that. And, and she's a prize to win. Um, and that he has to compete against her. And I can't help but see that that's very similar to the act of hunting dangerous game, that the prize is both what you get, but the activity that comes along with it. You are competing against the lion and the boar. You aren't just trying to hunt. You just hunt a hare and a stag. But the bear, the boar, they do fight back, which is why Venus has to say to Adonis, beware the things that fight back. Boldness can't fight against the bold. And so I'm seeing this very clear parallel between Hippomenes mm. and what he finds beautiful about. It's almost as if she is a wild animal to hunt, mm. a dangerous game. And Be- Adonis okay. is also. Because right, you yeah. die if you fail with her, which is not the norm, right? For chasing after a Same woman. with the hunting the wild beasts. Exactly. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. This is helping. This is helping. What you're saying right now is helping me so much because there's a line right after what you read that is easy to pass over. And I think my translation is different than yours, but my version says when he's looking at her and sees her running in her, all of her glory, the race gave her a beauty of its own. So I was wondering, well, what is the particular beauty of the race? But I think what you just said helps to enlighten that. But it's perhaps associated with, I don't know if this is a full answer, but maybe a start to an answer is that it's associated with this wild strength. Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think is the particular beauty of the race? The race gave her a beauty of its own. Yeah. Mine, yeah, mine, mine translates that as running gives her beauty. Um, but. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, mine but, says but I the- think it's all kind of tied together. Yeah. Mine says the race itself to exalt her charms conspires. So it, it amplifies it, it almost in my, uh, it amplifies her beauty. Um, and then it goes on that description that comes after that talks about how particular things that are associated with her running are connected with her beauty. Um, uh, golden pinions, which her feet adorn and wanton flutterings by the winds are born down from her head. The long fair tresses flow and sport with lovely negligence below. The waving ribands, which her buskins tie, her snowy skin with waving purple dye, as crimson veils in palaces displayed to the white marble lend a blushing shade. So that comparison of that, even her racing gear, I mean, she's nude, but she's her buskins are tied with something, right? So there's, um, is compared to how the draperies of a, of a palace bring added beauty to the marbles in the palace right because their color uh sets off the white marble or you know it's it's um there's the the racing her 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 strength as a racer her swiftness only amplifies her you know just physical beauty if you were just to be looking at her standing still let's say um and and i do think that that um which is interesting because there, there's something about that when you think about the wild animal too, right? The wild beast, the the lion is and the boar are majestic if you just see one standing in the field. But there also is something that that form comes to life when you see kind of the terror it has as well in in motion or in uh, attacking something. Um, 
And so if you put all that together with in all of these pursuits, there's this added danger of death that don't exist when pursuing a woman typically or don't exist when pursuing a hare or a bird the same way they do with a lion or a boar. Um, there's this heightened sense of of worth to it to succeed because the 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 potential downfall is so much greater. So it's it's a higher reward to succeed. But in all cases, it ends badly <laughs> in this story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm wondering now to to bring the comparisons um more fully. I wonder if Venus is is a hare or a stag in that way that she's a she's a non-dangerous gang and she wants Adonis to pursue her um because of the safety of that and she's giving us the story of a man who's attracted to dangerous game right she he has to compete against her and race against her or lose his life in the process um and and what we're looking at what he finds so beautiful about her is is exactly that everything he's attracted to her is bound up in what she does and and how that affects her how the race or the running affects her and so he's he finds the color of her skin as blood is drawn into it um more beautiful than simply without and and obviously the the inherently dangerous aspect of the race and so i think that there's a sort of practical element to the story that we see which is don't hunt wild game because you might die and then he hunts wild game and dies and then she's furious about that but there's also this i wonder more metaphysical uh, uh, part of the story where venus represents a safe and more nurturing environment because even as she's telling the story they're resting under a poplar tree and her head is in his lap um and she represents this more um you know safe feminine environment and he's but he's constantly and consistently drawn to this more deadly um violent environment that she she's not used to right she says herself i'm not used to such work um and i don't know i wonder if there's something something metaphysically happening there in the story can you flush that out a little bit more i'm trying to understand i mean you did mention that he's got his head in her lap and i think that's that's an interesting point that they're in this restful peaceful place as she's telling the story um but in a lot of myth and of course that doesn't mean it has to be in this one, but in a lot of Ovid's presentations of Aphrodite, she is the untouchable and and for a man to love her is his own eventual doom. So I'm I'm curious about this idea of her representing maybe a safer feminine. Where where else do you see that in this story? Or perhaps what textual evidence do we have for that? Well, I think from the beginning that it's not that a, the, the story, again, is told from the perspective of Venus. Um, it's not the story begins not with Adonis being attracted to her, but Venus being attracted to him. So he doesn't have to win her. He already has her. And yet he's constantly going after things he has to win. 
And so I don't know. I mean, I might be wrong, but that's I'm seeing in this story kind of going back to and even this the Atalanta and Hippomenes is all from this perspective. Almost all of it is from the perspective of Atalanta. And we have this really long speech where she's wrestling in her own mind about whether she should race him or not. Um, and she's starting to feel, she's even talking about how she's starting to feel love for him. And she's like almost working herself into love for him. And Abed gives this interesting line uh, at the end of her speech. She spoke, still innocent and new to longing. She loves, but does not know that she's in love. And I don't know, I'm seeing the comparison of the love that Hippomenes and Atalanta have for each other. And then the love that Venus and Adonis are having for each other and how those two sort of relate. Um, and it's very, very interesting because Hippomenes has to win Atalanta's love in a very deadly way. Adonis already has Venus's love because she was struck by Cupid's arrow. She loved mm -hmm. him first. And, but mm -hmm. then he ends up dying a grisly death going after something you know, not that he loved animals, but like he loved the act of hunting. Very so when you say that, that when you say when you called her safe, you didn't necessarily mean that he didn't have any danger to him in loving her. You meant that the love was secure. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Yes. That he didn't have to strive. He didn't have to run himself in order to have earned her love. There was no running. For Adonis, right. except for running away from, hmm. if if there was that, that's interesting. That brings me back to that question of well, what it, what is running? <laughs> what does it mean to run? Right. And what is the prize? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'll be I'll be curious to when we look at some new stories, um, how and even other ones that we're not you know reading and over the course of these weeks, but. I'm I'm very curious about that running and I'm also very interested in this feminine perspective that we're given where the god pursues or the goddess rather pursues the man and loses him to a masculine activity. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's really good. Something to think about there. Man I'm so glad we had this conversation. Y'all opened my eyes to so many things I wasn't even thinking about, and now I just have more questions, but but good, but in a good way. So this is good. I love it. I know, likewise. This has been fun, guys. Thanks. Yeah, me too. Um, well, we have one more. Yeah, thank you. We have one more set of tales from Ovid's Metamorphosis that we'll talk about next week. Um, in light of how we noticed this week things are breaking up a little differently, um, I have it in mind as kayaks and Alcyon or Halcyon, um, Alcyone, depending on how you pronounce, pronounce your Greek, and the House of Sleep from Book Eleven. But it 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 seems like in some of the other um, versions they don't they don't separate those with a different title. So you just want to be make sure you're reading uh, everything about Syx or Kyx and Halcyon that starts with that goes all the way through their ultimate metamorphosis, um, which includes some time down in the House of Sleep. So. Um, if you find yourself yours breaking up in different places, that's kind of hopefully will help guide you through the whole story. Um, so just want to put that out before people start reading for next week. That reminds me. We didn't even talk about the flower, the anemone flower. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yes, we missed I know. the whole final metamorphosis. We didn't talk about it at all. <laughs> I know we got stuck on the lion metamorphosis, and um, any you know, let, let's let's do that then for closing thoughts. Do you have any any thoughts about that that you wanted to just put out there, uh, Katerina? I had to look up what kind of flower it was. I'm oh. so illiterate when it comes to that kind of stuff, but um. I mean, I I don't know. I I think there's something to unpack there. It's it's it blooms for a very short amount of time. It's a very fragile flower. The text tells us that that's why he turns into that flower. That there's only that Venus gets a short amount of time with her love, or even just to mourn and commemorate her love, and that humans now when they see that flower, because I keep trying to go back to Ovid and his readers and how they would right. have experienced the story. Now they're going to wander the earth and see the anemone and they're going to remember the time that Venus loved the man who was bold um, and what that meant for him. I don't know. I mean, again, it comes down to what the purpose of the story is, but the fleeting aspect of it seems to be an interesting contrast to a lot of other myths where you become something more eternal. And his, I think he's the most fleeting of all the metamorphoses. That's interesting because their love is fleeting, her this this remembrance is fleeting, and Hippomenes' victory is fleeting, right? Like he he gets to enjoy um Atalanta for a very short time before their story comes to a quick end. So there's a lot of that mm-hmm. fleetingness running through the story. And then and then and then symbolized by that flower that's yeah, that's what I saw about the flower too, that it, it doesn't take much to knock it out, you know. A wind it doesn't last long anyway and then any little bit of uh temperature change or rain or anything and it's it's done so yeah and i don't know if it's just a oddity of english syntax but it does seem like there's a connection there to the running as well that there's this constant change that things are fleeting that the world mm-hmm, is in mm-hmm. flux there's this association with rivers. Of course, Adonis is the grandson of Neptune. So you've got these echoes, too, of, of the movement of water and life that mm-hmm. I see here in the flower and in the motif of running as well. Yeah. Good. Thank you for catching that we forgot that. <laughs> it would have been bad to not not at least mention that, uh, the, the metamorphosis of the story. So, um, well, I look forward to next week. And then after that, we'll have our... Uh, episode on on q a um so just reminder everybody that you can you can send questions on any of these myths that we've done so far to podcast at searchinstitute.org and then obviously you can send some more next week after we do uh kayaks and alcyon and the house of sleep um thank you for joining us again this week um for overdue classics we look forward to talking to you next week about the next stories and be sure to check out other shows on the Cersei podcast network 